I'm not Deborah Layton. I know that probably surprises some of y'all. She's at the confirmation retreat. I think that's right. Um, That is right. She's at the confirmation retreat this weekend with our sixth grade uh, uh, when we set this series up a long time ago um, so that I could happily pinch hit for this morning in the book of Hebrews, which I'm um, uh, eager to do. Just asking Robert, I'm not sure how many of y'all are kind of in this series with Deborah, uh, and if she's following a, a, a particular thread, I'm just going to sort of pick it up in chapter 8 and kind of walk with it a little bit, um, not not pursuing a theme per se, except the uh, the theme as the, the writer of Hebrews does, and so just very much an interactive time, I hope. If you want to ask any questions, please do as we just kind of approach the word, but we'll, uh, we'll dive in and see where it takes us. Let us pray. Gracious Father, for this day, for our church, for this group, for Deborah, for the confirmation class um, on their retreat this morning, um, and uh, and then especially for your word, living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, dividing joint from marrow. Now divide us, we pray, um, properly. Divide us so that we may um, have the ears to hear what you would want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Hebrews. This is really sort of the meat of the letter. Um, I, f- I feel sort of bad for, for Deborah. That's not true. Next week's going to be really good, too. But the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who it is. Um, early tradition, some had Paul ascribed as the author of Hebrews. It, um, it, it almost certainly isn't. Um, it certainly could be, but it doesn't, doesn't seem like it. Um, it stands very much against the way that Paul normally starts, and he identifies himself as Paul, an apostle um, of Christ Jesus. You know, and that's how we begin his letters. And it doesn't do. I didn't intend to do any of this. Um, he doesn't do that here. And the language, a lot of the New Testament scholars, they go through. This is one reason the Word of God, which is a very primary theme in Hebrews, especially Hebrews 4, the Word of God is living and active, sharpening double-edged sword, what I just prayed a moment ago. That comes out of the letter of Hebrews. Um, one reason I think the Word of God is so, um, almost as an implicit testament to its both its historicity, big word, just that it's historically reliable, um, but also its inspiration, meaning that it was inspired, it was breathed into by God himself, is just the amount of scrutiny it's undergone. I mean, people, both for, for you know, in terms of personal devotion, but also in an antagonistic way, have poured over, literally, literally, and there are a few things that you could be this literal about, literally every syllable even more than that. I mean, the little tittles, we even get that. And that's a, that's a Hebrew um, uh, grammar mark uh, that, that signifies a tense in the verbs. And it's been poured over for millennia now, for 2,000 years. And before that, for some of the Old Testament studies. And, and they've not been able to, 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 to really do too much more except to say this seems to be what it is, um, the, 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 the living Word of God. So that's a little aside. Um, New Testament scholars will pour over those kind of syllables and the words that are used and sort of compare them to other parts of the Bible. And this is all to say that it doesn't seem like it's, it's a, a letter from Paul because it's not only a different theme, there's some that are strongly interrelated with Paul, and we would expect that, but the language that's used and the logic that he um, presents, it's a little bit different than, than what... Um, uh, what he uses, say, in Romans or Galatians or in one of the letters to Corinth or something like that. So 
that's all just to sort of prattle on so you can kind of get to use to my voice and not Deborah's, uh, and to say that the, writer, the letter of Hebrews is a central part in the New Testament, and we don't really know uh, who wrote it. Um, it's not uh, essential to do that, um, but it's a, a wonderful letter, and it's one that our liturgy, um, the Anglican liturgy, which is where I, I, uh, I stole the title, uh, really relies on in this particular passage, um, Romans 8, I'm sorry, not Romans, um, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. So with that, I thought I would just start there. We didn't have um, the Eucharist this morning at 9, we will at 11, so if you go into 11, you'll hear these words, again, very familiar to us, the, uh, the first paragraph of the Eucharistic prayer from right 1, all glory be to thee, almighty God, our heavenly Father, uh, for that thou, of thy tender mercy, didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there, his death on the cross, who made there by his one oblation. An oblation is simply an offering. It comes from the verb ablate, which uh, a lot of us don't use every week. Um, but uh, it means to flatten out. Like if you're a metalwork, you would ablate the edges and you would flatten it out. And it also has a specific... Um, connotation and, and a sacrifice. I'm sorry, I'm not reading the letter. This is the this is the prayer um, that's in our prayer book. So we're going to be in Hebrews 8, but we're not there yet. I'm so sorry. So nope, um, just the prayer um, that we pray. Uh, All glory be to Thee, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. Um, so this is not in the Bible. Um, for that Thou of Thy tender mercy did give Thy only Son Jesus Christ to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there. Uh, by his one oblation uh, of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And did institute in his holy gospel, uh, command us to continue a perpetual memory of that his precious death and sacrifice until his coming again. These prayers don't come out of the air. That's all I wanted to say. Um, we may go back to that. Um, I find it very. People find it helpful. They tell me it's helpful when we look at parts of our liturgy as sort of it's, it's as it's the Bible that's arranged for worship. That's how some people describe Thomas Cramner's genius. Um, he's taking parts of the Scripture and especially Hebrews 9, and then he arranged it for our worship, our liturgy, which literally means the work of the people. That offering, this our offering, our bounden duty. Uh, and he lays it up. He doesn't take that out of the air. It's founded upon um, not only the scripture, but a real event. And that's going to be the event of Christ's sacrifice, his death upon the cross. And so this title, the, um, the Christ, the full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction. If I had a theme today, it might be that Christ's sacrifice, Christ's death, to speak very specifically, his death upon the cross it neither does not need to be repeated, and in fact, it cannot be repeated. Um, and so we'll kind of chase that theme. So any comments just on the introduction about the letter of Hebrews or, or uh, the, the, the place in the Eucharistic prayer? I'm trying to click our heads and our hearts over a little bit to, um, to, uh, to, to maybe our, our, our service of Holy Communion, um, where we're going to hopefully it'll resonate a little bit with this uh, with this passage from Hebrews. Any comments or thoughts before we jump in and just start into the text? <clears throat> um, well, Hebrews, one of the themes in Hebrews is uh, it takes several parts and it says there's this and then there's Christ. And Christ is always better. 
Um, the only language I speak other than English, uh, and I don't speak that real good, um, uh, the only other language that I speak with any kind of fluency is Spanish, and they have a suffix, isimo, which is a great suffix. It just means the very most of. And so you can have guapo, which means handsome, or guapísimo, you know, it's the most handsome. And that was in Three Amigos, if you ever saw that movie, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> guapísimo. Um, this would be the isimo. I mean, there, there is that Latin suffix, and that's all in there um, in the Latin translations. Uh, but, but it's always going to prove Christ the most and the very best. The very most and the very best. So you have the angels, and then there's Christ, the most angel of all the angels. He even says that. Or the ministry uh, of the, the Old Testament, and there's Christ ministry, and it's the ministry of ministries. There's Christ the covenant. There was the Old Covenant, and then there's the New Covenant of Covenants. Um, and so it goes through all this. Um, there's the priests of the Old Testament, the ones who stood on behalf of the people of God before God. And then there's Christ, the great high priest, the priest of all priests, um, the sacrifices of all the goats and the lambs and the bulls and the pigeons and everything else with just literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of gallons of blood that were spilled each year. It's very graphic. It's gross to our modern sensibilities. And then there's Christ and his blood, sacrificed once, finally, and fully for all. The sacrifice of sacrifices that, that, um, that ends everything else. And so all of this isimo, so to speak, is the full and final um, the full and final word, or ministry, or covenant, or priest, or, uh, or act. Um, and so that's all catching in here, in this part in Hebrews. So now, if you'd like to read along in our very small print version, um, in Hebrews 8, uh, we're picking it up. I mean, I'll read just little pieces, and then we'll, um, we'll stop and have a chance to, to make a comment or two and, and, uh, and come back with any questions, if you'd like. So Hebrews 8, verse 1, um, and now the point in what now the point in what we are saying is this: we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that is shown you on the mountain. So let me hit pause. So here, um, he's picking up the, the thread from before. So now... To, uh, now, the point in what we are saying is this, and so he's picking up everything that, that Deborah's been going through, and he's, he's keeping it very contiguous. He's letting it continue throughout the, um, throughout the letter, and he's, he's, he's saying everything that's, that we've talked about, keep that in mind. That's kind of the, the, the lens through which we're looking, these, uh, looking at these next statements. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So you have the priests, the people uh, who were chosen by God of the tribe of Levi, um, the descendants of Aaron, 
who were the ones who were chosen amongst the twelve tribes of Israel to stand in a very peculiar and specific way before the rest of Israel, before the rest of the eleven tribes, um, are to stand for them before God, before Yahweh and Elohim and all the other names that the Old Testament has of God, which describe his character and his, his righteousness. And so that tribe of Levi were the ones who were the priests. And then of those priests, one was chosen um, to serve as the high priest, the priest of priests. And so you even have that. And that's the one who each year was able to go into the Holy of Holies. So you have the holy place, and then you have the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. So you can hear sort of the language of isimo, of the superlative, of the superlative stop. You have the priest, you have the high priest, you have the holy place, you have the most holy place. Now the writer of Hebrews is picking all that up, and he's saying all that was true, but it's now but a copy. It's like a photocopy of a photocopy of an original, and it's not serving its purpose anymore. He's going to develop that theme. But God in his mercy, that's going to be the property from which we draw on, uh, has sent another. And this is the priest of priests who can satisfy the holy of holies once, finally, fully, and for all. And so he says, we have, it's the indicative, it's a statement, it's a declaration, we have such a high priest. And so now he's beginning to qualify, what kind of high priest do we have? Is it a high priest like Caiaphas, the high priest who who presided over Christ's death? No, it's going to be somebody totally different. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne. What's the significance of that? A lot of us have heard the Bible studies on this. The idea of seating means it's finished. You wouldn't sit down if you still had work to do. The priest would remain at his feet working and signifying that that I am here standing before the Lord God Almighty. Um, Here I am. Send me. But we have such a high priest, this priest of all priests, this once and for all priest, that this priest sits at the right hand of the Father. So significant, both that he sits and where he sits. The action of sitting, it's complete. He has no more work to do. He doesn't need to stand any longer. This is going to be important later. Um, So the action of sitting is important, and the place where he is sitting is important, because he is seated where? At the right hand of God. Later, he's going to develop the theme that he's sitting at the right hand of God for a particular purpose. So the action of sitting, the location of sitting, and the purpose of sitting in the location is to intercede for us, to be our advocate, the one who has the, the ear of the Father, um, and we'll see that in just a moment. And, and Paul does pick that up frequently in his letters as well. So we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the, the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, uh, in the true tent or tabernacle. That's how that word tent is often also um, translated. The, the tabernacle of God, which was laid out in very specific detail in so many parts of the Old Testament, particularly the, the Pentateuch, in, um, uh, where, where it said, and you shall build it with this, and here is what shall be contained therein. So many lampstands arranged in so, such a way, and the lampstand shall be created out of these materials and and this type of wood and this type of metal and these types of stones and all that 
um, a big deal. That was a big deal in the Old Testament um, and in, the Isra- in, in, in Israel's sensibility. But now he's saying that there's the true tent. Some would say, and you don't have to go here, but it's helpful. We can remember our philosophy 101 um, with Plato, because Plato predated all this, and so they're thinking maybe they drew on some of the Greek thought to, uh, to, to kind of draw in the hearers. Remember, Plato had the idea of a chair. No, he had the actual part of the chair, but then he said there was the idea of a chair, and that's what's more real, the physical chair or the idea. One's temporal and one's eternal, and Plato would say this idea of the forms, the eternal is what really matters for everything else is but wasting away. Well, you can take that for what you, if you want to. Um, uh, there's the tent, the holy place of God, um, and then there's the true tent, which now Christ himself is being recognized as the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, um, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. He's speaking of Christ, and he wouldn't be a priest, because he's not of the right order or tribe, for he's not in the tribe of Levi, but of the tribe of Benjamin, the least of the tribes, and kind of picking up on that theme is the youngest one. Um, uh, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So let me hit pause. I'm not going to pick up every single word there. Um, we don't have time. But any comments or questions or themes that are beginning to emerge in your mind? So we're going to bleed over and try to push this into our, our liturgy in just a moment. Say that, I'm sorry, say it again. Of our church? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the the tabernacle was designed uh, in Israel to really stand out. Um, and then the temple that was built um, finally in Jerusalem, which for, uh, for a time was seen as one of the wonders of the world, was um, was uh, was designed after the tabernacle um, described in the Old Testament. Uh, one was a tent, more temporary, um, one was permanent, and now Christ continuing to go forward and saying, I am the most of the most, uh, and even said, you know, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, and that's the charge they eventually used to kill him just as a, as a, as a reason to say it. All that comes forth, this idea of the beauty of one is but fleeting, and the ultimate beauty in sort of a counterpoint way of Christ and his death uh, was the most of all. I could, I could certainly develop that theme. Even the one who had no comeliness that we should admire him, as Isaiah would say, uh, was in fact the, uh, the most beautiful of all. The, the beautiful, scandalous night, as an old song once described it. Warm in here. Um, verse 6, uh, first of two times, and, and people who hear my classes hear me say this a lot. The word but, huge word in each and every instance in which it appears in the, old, in the New Testament, or probably the old too, but in the new more. Um, so it's worth paying attention to. Um, and here it shows up for the first time in verse 6. But, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old 
Uh, let me read that again. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is, an, it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for the second. So, this is the first time, well, one passing reference, I think, earlier in the letter. But now he's really going to develop this idea of a covenant, um, which is a big word. We get the word covenant and testament. They're, um, they're practically interchangeable. And we even call it the new covenant, the old covenant. The new testament, the old testament. In our tradition, we don't make a big deal of that. In other traditions, that's a huge deal. Um, this idea of a covenant... And later he's going to pick it up as a will. In the same way that we create a will, um, our last will and testament, this, this word which we give, which only becomes in effect when we die. And that's going to be the interesting theme that the writer is now going to begin to develop around this word covenant. That the word, that this covenant, this new covenant, which is as glorious and excellent uh, uh, by several degrees more than the Old Testament was passing away. He kind of very sloppily tries to separate the two and say, whatever that was, forget it. This is all the more. And this covenant only becomes binding when somebody dies. Just like a will, we can say all these things, and I'm going to pass all these things along to... Um, to so-and-so, and this is how I want other things to be arranged, but none of that comes into effect until, until when? Until I die. And then, strangely enough, even though I'm dead, I'm in complete power of the terms. And so that's the nature of a covenant, in the sense of a will, that the one who has died retains the power over the direction of the, the, um, of the content. And that's going to be the case of this new covenant, that the one who dies, God himself in the form of Christ, directs the uh, conditions of the arrangement. Now, what does that mean in real practical terms? That puts us back into the position of passivity. I love that word. I say it probably every other time I teach because it's worth hammering in again and again and again. If there is a new covenant, uh, it's worth thinking who, what are the terms of the covenant and who's the originator of the covenant and how does the covenant become in effect. The terms of the covenant are decided by God himself and it only becomes in effect when God dies. The crucified God, the God on the cross, the God-man Christ, when he dies, the terms of the covenant come in effect and we really have nothing to do with it. Um, you know, you could press this metaphor a little bit too far, but, but, but you know, like Stephen Green or an attorney in here, uh, you know, a well-crafted will, it can't be, Ron could help out here, um, a well-crafted will can't be contested. I mean, you can't change the terms of the will. It becomes binding, and the recipients or the non-recipients simply have to live with it. That's the way of the new covenant. God made the terms. He brought it into effect when the, 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 the high priest of all priests finally and fully as the sufficient sacrifice and oblation and satisfaction for the sins, not mine only, but for the sins of the whole world, when he died, there it was. And now I am the recipient of it, and I have to live with the terms because that's just the way God said it is. Luckily, we find out from his attributes, 
that his property is always to have mercy. Um, and it's, uh, it's to our benefit as he moves towards us. But Hebrews isn't there yet. It just wants to set up this. Look, this is the structure. It's a very legal document. Um, this is the structure of the new covenant, the last will and testament of, of, uh, of, of Christ, so to speak. Any comments on that as he's introducing this idea of a covenant? And then we're going to skip. He, he, he then uses Jeremiah as a, as, a, as, a, as a text that he begins to draw this from, where he said long ago, you know, he said, I will bring a new covenant, um, uh, and, and, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Um, and it's God declaring that it will be so. And then the effect of the covenant, that the covenant didn't come into effect until the death, until the death of the, what's that word in the law, the testator? Um, would that be right, Ron? The one, the one who makes the will? The one who makes the will, it comes into effect when that person dies. Um, whatever the word is, uh, that's, um, uh, that was what's prefigured throughout all of the old covenant. It says, I will do this. It's just not into effect yet. Any comments? Chapter 8. Then chapter 9, um, and this is where it gets into our, um, our Eucharist. Uh, starting in, uh, well, let me summarize this verse 1 through 10. Um, the, the writer talks about the first covenant had regulations for worship and earthly places of holiness, and he talks about the curtain. This is the curtain which is going to show up in, uh, in our liturgies here in just a few weeks in our readings. Um, it's the curtain that uh, on the, the, the hour in which Christ died, and there was an earthquake in the Temple, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It mentions that curtain in, in, in verse number three. Behind this second curtain in the tabernacle or the tent or the, the, the temple in Jerusalem itself, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. This is the uh, behind this curtain. That curtain was like six inches, nine inches thick. Uh, behind that curtain on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that's when the uh, the high priest, not any priest, but only the high priest could go to make atonement, to make the people of Israel at one with, with, uh, with God Almighty. That's where he went. It was that curtain which was torn from top to bottom, as if God were on top ripping it down, thus signifying the, that there is no more separation of a most holy place. Um, between, uh, between me and the people of God because Christ himself is the most holy place. And so as Christ now is out and loose, Aslan is on the move, C.S. Lewis would say, um, he's no longer located right there. As Protestants, we would say he's no longer located right there in the bread or right there in the wine or right there in the, uh, in the priest or right there in the... Um, uh, in the sanctuary or right there at the altar because um, it would be an altar and not a table. Um, Protestants would say, no, nine, no more. Um, he's no more located in a very specific place. The one ring to rule them all, we don't have that kind of located power anymore. That power is now diffused. It's been let loose. It's much more dangerous and radical uh, as it's no longer, we can't say that's where it is. Either let me go to it or let me avoid it. Um, but it's it's now it's now everywhere. Um, this is called the uh, the, uh, 
the indwelling of Christ, as he's now everywhere uh, and, and infused. Is, I don't want to use that word. It's a loaded word. It's now a part of many... Um, he's now in other parts of his creation. Let me just put it that way. So all that goes through uh, in the first nine verses and leads it up to verse 11. Um, let's go here and we'll... we'll uh, We'll be here for a few minutes, and then we'll stop. So verse 11, the second but. Um, But when Christ entered as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of his own creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So he's beginning this um, this movement to the once-for-allness of Christ, that uh, that at one time... You could view it that in a temporary way, our flesh, our actions, our thoughts, our, uh, our bodies, our souls, they could be purified. Our conscience could be purified, but only for, for, for a moment, only for the briefest of moments. Um, he's now saying it's the once and for allness that our consciences and our, our, uh, our flesh, our souls, every part of us, if you want to divide it into physical and spiritual, however you want to divide it, all of that has been taken and secured by Christ. Um, therefore, in verse 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that uh, everything's new. The writer of Hebrews is way into the new. There was something, and now there's something else. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death, as in the last will and testament, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who has made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses of all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So all this sounds so weird to me in 2013 because it it seems so far back. Um, This without the blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. And we sprinkle the book with blood, with hyssop and water, and it just sounds very sort of Masonic almost or something. Um, uh, The blood, the life, and the death of Christ, um, it was needed. It is needed. Uh, It speaks to both the, the spiritual and the material, where God who came into the world, that's the incarnation, had blood, uh, lived as among us, as one of us, uh, and then died. 
and didn't just die of, of tuberculosis, but he died as a sacrifice, um, not having his life taken, uh, but offered of himself. No one takes my life, he says, um, but I lay it down of my own accord so that I may again take it up. And so Christ comes and identifies with all of this ritual, where there is blood, there is life, and where there is blood, there is death. And he takes that, and he takes it for his own, and he turns it up, even for us who are, who are um, in 2013, uh, we may live a, a life distant from that in a way that, 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 that those people um, did not, uh, but it's still there. If you have somebody that you know close to you who's died, it's still there. The material life going out of them, it's still there. Whether it's, it's a bloody death or, or a slow death or uh, the, the, the life just drained out uh, over, over seven years and ravages of Alzheimer's or something much more sudden and quick and you didn't get to say goodbye, it's still there. This sapping out of, 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 of the life, blood, of, of, uh, of, of who she was to me, of who he was to me, all that is still there and it matters. It's material and it's really... And it matters. And that's what connects us even then to now. But he's saying all that it was, uh, it's now something else. And it's new, and it's finished, and it's complete. And we may think, well, that doesn't really matter, um, this material part. Why can't we just sort of have a spiritual union with Christ and God and just kind of the idea of transcendence, kind of leave it at that, and I can go sit in the trees and feel pretty good about life, et cetera, and so forth. And I admit, you know, that's, that, that feels good and that's that's there. But, but Christianity says there was a particular person in a particular place at a particular time who died a particular death who shed very particular and material blood. And that made a difference for all time. Um, And that's our story. As bloody and as remote, but as close and real as it is, that's our story. And I think it still stands even here uh, uh, in a a culture. It's not necessarily a time, because there are places where it's not not that much different. But at least in our culture, one has been sanitized from certainly blood, but even, even that type of death and mortality. Um, there's something good about having a graveyard attached to your church. Um, it brings this back, I think. Um, that's a little bit of an aside, but I think it mattered. Any comments on that? Any thoughts? And then we'll wrap up. This idea of trying to bring it down and back in a real sort of here and now way to what he's saying um, towards our Eucharist. Yeah, Charlie? Can you graveyard and church? Um, yeah, it was a leap, wasn't it? Um, it brings us to our mortality. Um, you know, a graveyard technically is a, uh, uh, is a cemetery attached to a church. A cemetery doesn't have a church attached to it. We don't have that many graveyards anymore. Um, churches aren't, aren't started with a graveyard in mind. Um, we have cemeteries, and they're, they're often out. Uh, uh, they're, they're away. We go there when we have to. <laughs> you know, we go there... Um, either because we have to bury somebody or maybe because, you know, it's, it's, it's Christmas or Easter and I'm going to go put flowers on the ground. Um, there's something good about having a graveyard where on our way to church, 
when in a certain sense we're preparing for our death. Um, I've been looking for a place to insert this. Somebody uh, had this description. I like still the idea of the church being a, a, a hospital for sinners rather than a country club for saints. You know, that's a great metaphor. Better, although it's still a good hospital for sinners, come here for the healing balm of Gilead. It's a hospice. I wish our church was a church that could say, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and I will help you to die well. Now that's at a spiritual level, but at a physical level too. We're preparing for our death, preparing for our mortality, coming in through a graveyard. Even our columbarium, I think, can do this. My, 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 my heart goes here when I walk through there often. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Remember, um, but from the earth you came, and to the, to the earth you shall return. Our mortality is always before us, um, as you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes would say in so many ways, that, that everything except for this is vanity, 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 a chasing after the wind. Whatever we do in our powerful positions and professions and, and everything else is but a fleeting time. And so graveyards bring us back to that very earthy realization that blood matters, that it's material and that my blood will run its course, but the blood of a particular person in a particular place at a particular time on a particular hill changed everything. That's why I think we need graveyards more than cemeteries. And I'm not going to trump that or just you know campaign for that. I'm not going to die on that grenade. But it's, um, but it's worth thinking about, I think. Um, there are communities that just... They say, we're not going to have cemeteries here in our ordinance. We're not going to do it because we don't want, we don't like that. We want to have that somewhere else. Um, that says something about a community. That says something about a, a group psyche, uh, about a group soul. Um, the writer of Hebrews would say, eh, none of that. That is not, uh, that's not it. So where does the... Uh, the Eucharist come in. Um, let's finish here. Look down um, verse 24. We'll start there. Remember these words. Uh, All glory be to thee, almighty God. Uh, this, this is not in here. This is the Eucharistic prayer. But remember these words. All glory be to thee, almighty God, our heavenly Father, for that thou, so many parenthetical and prepositional phrases, but that you, comma, of thy tender mercy. That's the property or the attribute, the true truth and the real reality of God, which is the fuel line for that which follows. All glory be to you, O God, our Heavenly Father, for you, of your tender mercy, didst give. John 3.16 For God gave His only begotten Son to the end that all that should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So from that fuel line of His mercy... He gives His only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer, to endure, to undergo death upon a cross for our redemption, who made there on a cross by His one oblation an offering of Himself once offered, not twice. It's not when we go back in at 11 o'clock and, and, and Frank Limehouse, whoever raises the host and does the words of consecration, he's not sacrificed again that, and, and the Roman Catholic Church doesn't believe that 
per se anymore, but it once did. That was the, that was the theology of the mass, um, that he would be offered again and again and again on our behalf. Hebrew Cramner said uh, of himself, once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction. It snaps it up and it's complete. Everything now has been done and we are free because our sins have been taken. Hebrews is the root for that very convicting and liberating uh, event which we call the Eucharist or the Holy Communion, our, our common union with Christ. Because remember, he's free now, and he's not located in a certain place, and so we are communioned with him. Um, for Christ, verse 24, has entered, not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. So that's where he sits at the right hand of God, in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf as my advocate, as the great and final and full and perfect priest, because every priest stands on behalf of a person or people before God. This is why in sort of the old uh, uh, tradition in Anglicanism, you wouldn't call our priest priest. You would call them ministers. Um, uh, I still sometimes call them priests. When I'm thinking, I call them ministers because of this. They're not priests. We have one priest, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. All the others, Joe and Andrew and everybody else, as well as all of us, are ministers of him. We minister to the one priest who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven on our behalf, the great high priest, the priest of priests, the Isimo, the priest Isimo. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, so it's not a mass, as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But, there's a word again, as it is, he has appeared once for all, not only for all time, but for all people. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of itself. As far as uh, the east from the west, so far has Christ and his cross put away sin between us and God. That is the work of a priest. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So both the um, uh, sin has been put away, and then the penalty of sin has been removed. That means purity. The purified conscience, the purified life. Um, now actually free. Um, free to live, free to die. Um, free to worship, free to approach, free to retreat. Uh, free to love, free to be loved. Um, just free. That's good enough. For any comments or thoughts? It's a great letter. Never picked a good one. Let me pray. Father, um, take all this and uh, multiply it by your grace um, uh, so that your work would be done in your way, not lacking for anything needed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Thank you.